Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12. The whole theme of the book of Revelation is that the king is coming. And as we are here in chapter 12, we are seeing this final stage that is set uh, on the world before Jesus returns. And last week, we were introduced to four of the major players on that stage. We saw Israel, the nation of Israel. We saw Satan. We saw Jesus, of course, and then Michael the archangel. And as we looked at that, these symbols here, that the Scripture tells us what these symbols mean. We were reminded of Satan's plan to destroy Israel, to destroy the line of the Messiah, placing them with a false Messiah and a false kingdom under his control. But as Satan executes that plan uh, in the end times, the Lord steps in to rescue his people. Michael and the faithful faithful angels, they launch an offensive against Satan and his fallen angels, and they throw them out of heaven forever. And that is a glorious day for those in heaven, but as we're going to see, it is a dangerous day for those who are left on the earth. So chapter 12, we're going to pick it up in verse 10, right after Satan and the fallen angels are cast out of heaven permanently. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. In verse 10, we see the fallout, we begin to see the fallout from Satan's defeat in heaven. And, and first off, it's good news. There is rejoicing in heaven. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now, as after Satan and his angels are thrown out of heaven permanently, now is come, now is come into existence. Something is now brought into being. It mentions what is brought into being is salvation, strength, the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ, four things. Now, each one of these four things has the definite article, the word the there before it. So all of them are unique, the salvation. What salvation is he referring to? Well, these are all the promises of, that God has made to rescue us in Scripture, to bring that final rescue about. Certainly, when we talk about salvation, it talks about our personal rescue in the sense that Christ died for our sins. We also experience, you know, daily salvation in the sense that God rescues us from the messes that we get ourselves into, right? And, and certainly, um, you know, God is still saving us in the sense of our sanctification, and we will be saved in the sense of our glorification. But the salvation mentioned here is that final salvation, that rescuing the world from the work of the enemy. It's in that sense where it mentions that, you know, uh, Eve was promised by God that, you know, while the serpent would bite your seed's heel, he will crush Satan's head. And so this idea now is come the salvation. It is this idea is come. It's being brought into existence. The first step of it is that Satan is cast out of heaven. Uh, 
Now is brought into existence the strength. Now, strength here is that the dunamis, the power. And it refers here to the power of God. We'll get back to what that means in a moment. Now is brought into existence the kingdom of our God. And certainly we understand that as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying for Christ to come and set up his kingdom. And now is come into existence the power, this is a different word, the authority, the jurisdiction, the right to act of his Christ. Jesus' is reign. You know, it'd be God's kingdom with Christ as king is coming. Now again, all of these make sense except for one phrase. What does it mean now has come the power? What does it mean the power? Well, we know that God is all-powerful, so how can his power be brought into existence. If it's always is, he is always all-powerful, how can it be brought into existence? Well, there are a few truths that we know um, that we don't always see necessarily in effect. For example, God is always all-powerful, but we don't always see God exercise all of his power. We know that God is always good, and yet there are times where God withholds that, you know, because of reasons we'll get to in a minute. And so the challenge comes is that sometimes when we see awful things, we can begin to doubt, is God really all-powerful? Is God really good? Sometimes we can even begin to doubt God's existence. A common atheist saying is a quote from the Greek philosopher Epicurus. It's quite clever. It says this, and I quote, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Well, then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence comes evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? There was a, a meme that went around, well, it probably still goes around on social media, you know, and it gives that quote, and it says, atheists winning for thousands of years. It is a clever quote. However, the statement makes some very faulty assumptions. Number one, it makes the assumption that we all aren't evil. It makes the assumption that somehow we are good and that God can take care of evil without dealing with us. It also makes the faulty assumption that we don't have a choice in what happens, that we don't have a role to play, that God doesn't respect that choice. It also makes the faulty assumption, and this is the big one, that doesn't, God doesn't care who's eradicated when he purges evil, that it doesn't matter to him, that it's just something he would arbitrarily do or just do because it needed to be done. However, the Bible tells us a drastically different story than those faulty assumptions. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses nine and 3, verses 9 and 10, it tells us that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't that interesting? When God talks about how he is always good, he is always all-powerful, and that he's going to rescue us at some point in time, why does he withhold? Why doesn't he do it yet? because he's not willing that any should perish, because he loves us. You see, all these elements, they leave out the element of God's love. But rest assured this, 
2 Peter 3 verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord, oh, it will come. It will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and all the works that are therein shall be burned up. It's coming. God will bring his power to bear. God will bring his goodness to bear. But in his love, in his gracious character, he's not willing that any should perish. And so he waits. You see, the truth is this. We are all evil. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our choices do matter. And God does care. He doesn't want us to perish when he displays his power and his goodness. And thus, it is only when there is no other option that God eradicates all evil. We see in the book of Isaiah where it says that judgment is God's strange work. It is his slow work. He is patient far more than we are. Now, we have seen God already bring his power and his goodness to bear in eradicating evil in the flood, right? That's what's funny. If you read that text in 2 Peter chapter 3, right before we get to the part where God says he's not willing that any should perish, he says, but this they are willingly ignorant of, that there came judgment before. God did eradicate all evil, and how many people survived it? Eight. And we will see God's goodness and power brought to bear again when he sets up his perfect kingdom. At the halfway point of the great tribulation, his omnipotence is brought to bear first by throwing Satan out of heaven permanently. And so that's why the voice here cries out and says these things. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Now, this leads me to believe that the voice speaking, now has come these things, comes from one of the 24 elders. Because it mentions our, the accuser of our brethren. You know, this is not an angel that's speaking here. This is not the Lord who's speaking here. This is someone who is one of us, but a part of the church. And he says, well, the accuser, he has cast down the one who accused them, the brethren, us, before our God day and night. You know, our enemy, he brings accusations to the Lord about us. He brings accusations and condemnation to us. Our enemy points to the troubles in our life and he accuses us by saying, this is happening because of your failure. These problems would have never arisen if you'd only done the right thing. He accuses us before the Lord pointing out every failure. But when Satan is thrown out of heaven, that will all come to an end. Amen? <laughs> no more accusations. Also, no more temptations to doubt God's love and to doubt our forgiveness because he has to get permission from God to do that. And he won't have access for that anymore. None of that. All remaining believers on the earth will be free from his spiritual influence. Now, you might be thinking, that's great for them, Pastor Will, but what about me? <laughs> what about us now? Do we have to wait until we're dead? Do we have to wait until we're in heaven to be victorious over the enemy? No, not at all. We could defeat the enemy just like the tribulation believers did before Satan's thrown out of heaven. For it mentions in verse 11, and they overcame him. It's in the aorist tense there, which means it doesn't mean that they 
they're going to overcome him. No, they don't need to overcome him anymore. But it mentions even before this, they overcame him. And here's how. Three ways, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and thirdly, they loved not their lives unto the death. They were already victorious over the enemy through these three things, three ways. Number one, by the blood of the lamb. The word by means on the ground of or because of this reason. In other words, because of what the blood of the Lamb accomplished. It is common for me to hear Christians verbalize that, well, I'm appealing the blood of Jesus or I'm pleading the blood of Jesus. And I'm not, I suppose that phrase is okay. I'm not trying to critique that. I do get a bit uncomfortable, though, when it's used like a mantra or an incantation. Like if you just say it, it makes all the problems go away. Um, that's not Christianity, of course. So what it means here is not a phrase we need to say, but it's saying on the ground of or because of what the blood of Christ accomplished. So what this means is that they defeated Satan by looking to what Jesus already did for us, by looking back. And so that's a good question then to ask, what did Jesus' blood accomplish for us? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 tells us that his blood purchased me from the enemy and made me forever forgiven. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, it tells us that we, by whom or through whom, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In Romans chapter 5 verse 9, it teaches us that we are, you know, forever free from God's wrath, that God, Jesus' blood declared me to be righteous and saved me from all future wrath. It says, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Ephesians 2, verses 12 and 13, it says, you who were afar were brought near unto God. We were brought into the family of God. You who weren't a people were made a people and were given an inheritance. Jesus' blood brought me into the family of God. Hebrews 9, 12 It says that through Jesus' blood we have obtained eternal redemption. It means that we have been rescued forever from the guilt and the power of sin. And then, of course, Jesus on that Passover night where he instituted the Lord's Supper, Luke 22, 20, a new covenant I give unto you through my blood. He accomplished it by his blood. He gave us a new covenant, a better covenant with God. Now, all of Satan's accusations, don't they attack those truths? You're not forgiven. You're not God's child. You're not going to heaven. Everyone's going to hate you if I find out what you did. Your troubles are God's judgment on your life. God's sick of you. You failed too many times to be forgiven again, etc., 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 right? All of those truths, he attacks us and accuses those truths. And Here's the reality. If you evaluate his accusations based on your behavior, you will wilt under his brutal attack. That's not true. That's not true. I I don't always do the wrong thing. (laughs) You know what I found? I have found that the reason that Satan's accusations and temptations and condemnations are so difficult to bear is because he's, he's got facts most of the time. Like, he doesn't usually walk up to, okay, maybe I'll throw out a weird example, okay? He doesn't usually walk up to me and say, oh, Will, I saw you lusting after men. Not my problem. Maybe it's yours, but I'm saying that's not my issue. But he does come to me and he does condemn me for the things that I do struggle with. 
the things that are real temptations for me. And so, he's got the facts. So if you try to evaluate his accusations based on your behavior, you will wilt under that brutal attack. But if you evaluate the enemy's accusations based on what Jesus' blood accomplished for you, you can't lose. Can't lose. You know, that beautiful promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Amen? It's a promise. That's a promise. And so he starts the chapter that way, and then he gets to the conclusion where he says, you know, what shall we say then to all these things? What shall we say then to this great salvation that God has given to us? He says in verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Well, the enemy does all the time. But here's the answer. It doesn't matter. It's God who justifies. Take it up with my lawyer. You're blocked. Don't call me. Take it up with my attorney. Because 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says very clearly. It says, my little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. The goal is always to be walking with the Lord, to always be walking in obedience to him, right? Like sin's never okay. But and if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous, who's a propitiation for our sins. He satisfies all of God's wrath against our sins, and not just for us, but for the entire world. So whatever you've done, whatever background you've come from, you can go with confidence to the throne of God, and when he brings the accusation, you can defer to your attorney who says, guess what? I'm interceding for you. Guess what? Already paid for. So you don't need to argue with him. You go, no, no, I didn't really mean to do this. You just say, I don't need to have a conversation with you. Talk to my advocate. And if he ever has a problem with me, I'll listen to what he has to say about it. Who is he that condemns? Well, the enemy does all the time. But it doesn't matter because it's Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God and who also makes intercession for us. He is for you. He's not against you if you're his. So it doesn't matter what the enemy says. How do you respond to the enemy's accusations in your life? You know, do you appeal to what Jesus' blood accomplished for you? Or do you appeal to your own righteousness? If you appeal to your own righteousness, I can guarantee you you're going to struggle. Or here's the... Here's a, <laughs> Here's the, the twisted part. This is where our pride becomes a problem. We think, why well, should we be better than this? That's a pride issue. Like, that, that's what I struggled with a long time. Well, I should, I, know, I should know better. I'm a Christian, you know? I've been walking with Jesus for X amount of years. I should know better, right? You know, it's funny. The scripture says something entirely different. It doesn't say, you've been walking with Jesus for 17 years. You should know better. You've been walking with Jesus for 35 years, you should know better. It says, he knows our frame that we're simply dust and like a father pities his children, so he pities them that fear him. That's what the scripture says. So if, <laughs> I remember Pastor Romain, <laughs> he came up uh, to Bible college and he was speaking to us. They always brought Pastor Romain to come up when we needed a good, a good talking to. And uh, he said, God expects you to do one thing, Fail because that's what he knows you're capable of on your own. 
So get it out of your head that somehow you're going to get it right on your own. It's only if we walk in the Spirit that we'll not fulfill the desires of the flesh, right? It's all a gift from God. Our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, it's all Him working through us. Romans 8, chapter 8 says, it says, if you do mortify the deeds of the flesh, if, 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 let me get it right. I'm misquoting already. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. I, I grew up in a church environment where you got to crucify your flesh. You got to crucify your flesh. All right, all right, all right. I'm going to get it better. I'm going to fix it. You know? You know? Do some more push-ups, you know? Spiritual push-ups, you know? Read 17 more verses today. Read two more chapters. I'm going to get it, you know? Come at me, devil. I got you. I got you this time, you know? Face plant. <laughs> we reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin and alive unto God. We reckon ourselves that we've been crucified with Christ. I don't need to crucify the flesh. Those that are Christ have crucified the flesh and the lusts thereof, right? It's something that has already happened, a completed work in Christ. So it's important that we understand they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by looking to what Jesus did, not looking to themselves, what they could do, what, what they, they would do on their own. The second way that they overcame the enemy is by the message of their testimony. That's what the word means, the message of their testimony. A testimony is someone's firsthand witness experience. You know, they're witnessing, testifying of what their firsthand experience has been. It's interesting, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Paul calls the believers in Corinth living letters from God. And, and while he says the Corinthians were letters that confirmed God's genuine work through Paul, in other words, Paul was defending his ministry saying, you are confirmation. I don't need somebody to give me a letter and say, yeah, Paul's anointed. He says, you're my letter of commendation. You're my living letter of God's work through me because of God's work in you. And so even though it was a confirmation of God's genuine work through Paul, our lives serve as similar evidence to the enemy. When the enemy comes to you and says, you're never going to change, you're always going to struggle with this, you can look back at the truth that you already have changed, that God's already done a work in your life. When the enemy says, enemy says to you, you'll never beat this, you can look back at the other things that God has helped you beat. And those truths of what God has done in our life, our testimony, that needs to be our message. These believers, they answered the accusations of the enemy by saying, no, no, you're wrong. My life is a testimony that proves it. I can't tell you how many times I've combated the enemy's attacks in my life. He's lies by saying, well, you've brought me this far, God. I didn't sink all the other times, and that's a promise I won't sink today. Here I am. I'm still here. <laughs> I've had numerous times in my life where I've thought to myself, I'm going under. This is it. This is the end. Whether it was a financial thing, a health thing, a, a spiritual thing, I've had many things in my life where I thought, this is the end. And here I stand. So, God's past faithfulness is evidence of his future faithfulness. Are we perfect? No, that's why we look to the blood of Jesus. But believers have a testimony. If you've repented of your sins and placed your trust in Jesus, you have a testimony. 
and you need to turn it into a message, either whether it's just in your heart or maybe you might need to write it down just to remember what God did. You know, anytime I'm going through a trial where it's hard, like I was reading this morning in, in Numbers where the people got, they complained, they were upset because they thought, man, we're sick of this man of God. And I thought, Lord, I do that. I do that. I'm sick of this diet, or I'm sick of this problem, or I'm sick of this struggle, or I'm sick of this thing. And all of the way through, God's took, taken care of me, right? All the way through, God's got my back. He's held me up by a strong right hand. And so immediately when those thoughts come in, I've, I've, I've taught myself to say, stop, just start thanking the Lord. Just start remembering what he did. And if that's a struggle for you, then that's why I say maybe take some time to write out a message. Write out a word of your testimony. Write out all the things that God's done in your life. Write out all the things that, that you can be thankful for. And then put it on an index card and put it in your pocket. And so when you're out and about and the enemy hits you, you pull that thing out and go, no. This is what God's done already. And it's a promise that he's going to keep being faithful to the end. The third way that they overcame the enemy was they loved not their lives unto the death. Literally, they carried the, their not love of their life even unto death. So they had a not love of their life through life all the way through to their death. And that word love is that word agape, that unconditional devotion. Their life, both in existence, in its existence and in its quality, was not the thing that they were unconditionally devoted to. What is the most precious thing to you this morning? Is it yourself? Is it maintaining your quality of life? That's a fast pass to defeat, man. <laughs> it's a fast pass to defeat. You know, when the enemy comes to you with a temptation, don't say, oh, but that's wrong. Or, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm not supposed to do that, you know? Like, you know, if I... Not that this ever happens, but if I was to have some, uh, you know, woman proposition me, I wouldn't say, ooh, I can't. Oh, I'd really like to, but sorry. That would be heartbreaking for my bride, first off, and it would probably not be very effective because the other person would think, well, I just got one thing I need to overcome. She need to get you to cross the line. That's where the enemy works with us. If my mindset is this sense of, oh, you know, I can't. I'd like to, but I can't, you know? Not part of the code. Legalism has never rescued anybody. Never. Tell the enemy, I love Jesus, and I don't want to displease him. Tell him I trust Jesus because I know he loves me and he wants what's best for me. That's what you say. Because you can't defeat someone who has that mindset. Because then if the enemy, even if he takes everything from you, even if he takes your life, well, guess what? You still have Jesus. Can't lose, right? Right? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, that beautiful section of scripture where Jesus talks about what it means to be his disciple. He says, whosoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
That's what he says. Another scripture says, my sake and the gospel will find it. Now, while these three keys to defeating the enemy are important, it will be a great day for every believer when we are finally free of his presence. Um, But it won't be a great day for the earth. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, it says, and you that dwell in them. But, you know, and that's us. That's us and the angels. Us and the angels are those who dwell in the heavens. Rejoice because the accuser of our brethren is cast down. I mean, can you imagine how difficult, you know, it must be for the angels to listen to the enemy's shenanigans when he comes into heaven? And when he comes, and can you imagine what it's like for, you know, for, for, you know, uh, Michael to hear, you know, the enemy accuse Job and say, the only reason he loves you is because you never let anything bad happen to him? Like, if I was Michael, I'd be like, let me at him. Can, can, I, can I do it now? Can I put the chain around him and put him in the bottomless pit now? Can you imagine what it's like for believers today who are with the Lord to hear those shenanigans? Think to yourself, I used to listen to, I used to listen to those lies before I was here. I struggled with those temptations before I was here. My brothers down there, my sisters down there, they're going to struggle because of this guy's shenanigans. It'll be a glorious day, a rejoicing day when all that comes to an end. But woe to the earth and to the sea. The word inhabitors there is not in the original text. It just means woe to the earth and to the sea. Woe means disaster, horror. This is bad, bad news. Why? For the devil has come unto you having great wrath because he knows that he has but a short time. Satan's access will now be limited to the physical realm of this earth, the earth and the sea. God's judgment during that time is going to be heavy, And Satan's plan is going to be in full swing. So listen, you do not want to be around on the earth during this time. If you're not a believer right now, I urge you, I beg you, please repent while there's still time to escape this coming day because you do not want to be around for the horrors and the disasters that will occur. Now, upon this defeat, Satan's going to turn his attention back to the nation of Israel, verse 13. And when the dragon saw, the word there means understood, realized, when he realized that he was cast into the earth, when he realized this wasn't just another fight with Michael and the, the, the faithful angels, when he realizes that he is, he is now barred from heaven, that the end God promised him is close, when he realizes that his failed counterattack has given these Israelites precious time to escape, it says he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child, the male offspring. The word there, persecute, means to chase after, to pursue with hostility. You know, I, I, am, I am very curious, because the Bible doesn't give us all the details, of how Satan's defeat in heaven will affect the Antichrist here. You know, I know that mankind doesn't need Satan to throw a temper tantrum and to commit genocide, so I know the Antichrist can do all that fine on his own. But I do wonder if Michael's attack against Satan and then Satan's failed counterattack does have something to do with the wound the Antichrist receives. Because it says in Revelation 13.3, right at the same time, and I saw one of his heads, the Antichrist, as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed. So we know something happens to him because the false prophet will cause people to worship the Antichrist because of his deadly wound that was healed. Something happens at this point in time. I don't know what it is. It doesn't tell us what it is. 
But something happens when Michael makes this attack, Satan counterattacks and fails, and he's cast down to the earth, that injures the Antichrist in some way that allows the Israel, some of these Israelites to get away. Whatever happens on earth during this war in heaven, it buys the surviving Israelites time to flee their homeland. But it is a long journey into the desert to the place, verse 6 tells us, that God had prepared for them to stay for three and a half years. And so when Satan begins his chase, they're going to need some more help to escape. In verse 14, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and times, and half a time, three and a half years from the face of the serpent. So some type of help is given to her. It mentions two wings of a great eagle so that she can fly into this destination, into the desert. Um, again, when we look at symbols in the Scripture, um, we don't need to make things up or try to be creative. Uh, I know it's popular for many people to say, well, the United States is in the Bible. We're the eagle and we're allies to Israel and this is going to be an airlift where we help them get you know, to the place they need to go. Um, and while that sounds happy, like a happy ending for our country, um, the problem is, is that there's no other reference to that in Scripture that would cause us to think that that's the case. On the other hand, there is this symbol is used in another place in Scripture when God is rescuing Israel from when an enemy is chasing them. Turn to Exodus chapter 19 with me. Exodus 19. Verse 4 is the symbol, and then we're going to go to Exodus 14 to look at what the reality was. In Exodus 19 verse 4, after Israel's gotten away from the, uh, the Egyptians who were chasing them, into the Red Sea. The Israelites walk across dry land. The Red Sea collapses, drowns the Egyptian army, probably drowns Pharaoh too. And then once Israel's free from that, and the Egyptians are no longer a threat, the Lord is dealing with other things. And in Exodus 19.4, note what the Lord says to Moses. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Interesting. So God has used this symbol before to describe, because I know God literally didn't do eagle's wings. He's used this symbol before. So what did God do to rescue them from the Egyptians? Exodus 14, verses 19 through 22. Context. Pharaoh told Israel they could go. Israel's out there. God is leading them in the desert, and God leads them to a dead end. He actually takes them South, He doesn't want them to go the northward way into the promised land because he's concerned that they would not be ready to fight yet. So he takes them south. The problem is south is right into a, a body of water. And not only does he lead them to a dead end, a body of water, he leads them where they can't go north or south because there's a mountain to the north and a mountain to the south. They're literally hemmed in. The only way to go is back the way they came. But when they get to the dead end, God says, chill here for a bit. Well, when word gets back to the Egyptians, Israelites, they're lost in the wilderness. They're stuck in a dead end. Pharaoh's servant said, why did you let them go? And he's like, I don't know. Let's go get them back. Let's go get our slave labor back. And so they come out with their entire army. Well, this panics the Israelis when they see the cloud of dust. They can tell it's the army coming for them, the chariots. And so look at what the Lord does Exodus 14, 19. This is how he carried them by eagle's wings. 
And the angel of God which went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind them. So an angel who was protecting them in the front goes and moves behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face in front of them and stood behind them. So God's presence, which was in front of Israel, the pillar of cloud, the cloudy column, it goes behind them to block the Egyptians and an angel goes behind them to stand in the way of the Egyptians. Verse 20, and it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, the Egyptians, but it gave light by night to these, to Israel, so that one came not near the other all the night. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea while this block's going on, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground. I love how modern day, you know, uh, uh, scholars say, you know, well, you know, the, the Red Sea back then, or the body of water back then that the Israelites went through, it was only about three feet thick. I love what a kid said once, and he said, that's amazing, that's a miracle. Guys, God drowned the entire Egyptian army in only three feet of water. (laughs) Out of the mouth of babes. Either way, it's a miracle. Back then, that's what God's intervention looked like, what eagle's wings looked like. Well, then we look at another phrase here in Revelation 12, and it mentions that these eagle wings allow her to fly into the wilderness. Now, we use the phrase, as the crow flies, to describe a straight line without the obstacles of topography or geography. So is it possible that God will speed these fleeing Israelis' path uh, by opening up like bodies of water or opening up? Mounted? I I don't know. Will he send an angel behind them to block the enemy from catching them when they're fleeing? I think all of those possibilities are plausible. They make the most sense given that's what this symbol meant at a prior time in Scripture. Whatever the case is, they're going to escape and they will be nourished for three and a half years, the last three and a half years of the tribulation there in the desert. Uh, They'll be fed there by God, protected from the face of the enemy. Now, when Satan sees that he won't be able to catch them in time, he makes a last-ditch attack. Verse 15, and the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Um, He hurls, throws out of his mouth water like a flood. It means water like a river. Since Satan can't follow the woman, he seeks to drown her. Again, what does this symbolize? Well, Daniel 11, verses 20, I'm sorry, verse 10 and verse 22, they both describe armies as rushing waters, um, rushing rivers. Um, so maybe, you know, it could represent a last gasp blitz by the Antichrist armies. However, uh, because verses 13 and 14 tell us that the enemy's prevented from catching up to the fleeing Israelis, I'm more inclined to think it represents some type of projectile attack, some type of maybe a missile launch or something like that. Um, Again, some suggest that the eagle's wings and then later on the earth opening up represents other nations helping to airlift Israelis to their destination, but there are problems with that theory, in particular the prophecy of Isaiah 59. Turn to Isaiah 59 with me. Most people don't look at this one like a prophecy because 
uh, Isaiah seems to be describing the condition in his own nation. Um, the problem with that is that when Isaiah is describing the conditions in his own nation, he refers to them as the kingdom of Judah. Uh, we already know he's been speaking to Israel as a whole in this section of Isaiah. We know that these prophecies, these portions of Scripture in Isaiah are referring to Israel's rebirth, referring to a future time. And so when we read Isaiah 59, it is very interesting. Isaiah 59 describes a situation in Israel that is incredibly dark. The people aren't trusting God. They're living in sin. They're in the promised land, but they're there in unbelief. Exactly how Ezekiel 36 and 37 says that Israel will be when they're reborn in the last days, when they become a nation again in the last days. And as God is listing out Israel's wickedness, it's, it's, this, is not a, this is not a pretty chapter. If, if these are describing the things that are going on during the end times Israel, then we understand why he would call it Sodom and, you know, and, and Egypt. Uh, Jerusalem, he'd call it Sodom and Egypt earlier in Revelation. So, God, as he's listing out this wickedness, he comes to a place where he begins to wonder. He goes, and yet, even though they're wicked like this, why is no one standing up for them? Why is the whole world coming against them? Prophecy in our midst today. And so instead of being another person to abandon the nation of Israel, the Lord says something interesting in verse 16. And he saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. What would be enough to rescue Israel? Not their righteousness, his righteousness. His faithfulness to his promises. His faithfulness to what he said he would do. His faithfulness to his character. For he put on righteousness, verse 17, as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. And he was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, not Israel we're going to see in a minute, but according to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To who? To the islands he will repay recompense. To all of those nations bordering around Israel. And so, verse 19 says, they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun when the enemy shall come in like a what? A flood. The spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Now, I know we use that verse all the time to talk about when the enemy attacks us and we say, hey, when the enemy comes in like a flood, it's gonna overwhelm us. The spirit of the Lord lifts up a standard against him. I'm not saying that's not true, but contextually, this is prophetic. Lifting up the battle standard is an action that happens when an army is moving into battle. And so the Lord is saying, since no one else will stand but to defend Israel, I will. And so I think this is wholly supernatural here, you know. Is it possible that Isaiah 59 is predicting this supernatural protection during this attack from Satan? That whatever attack the enemy launches, God's spirit intervenes and opens the earth up and swallows up whatever attack is coming? Yes, I do. Verse 16, and the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood. Not, not a nation, it's the earth that helps. Swallowed up the flood with the dragon cast out of his mouth. Now, again, God already did this once in Numbers chapter 16, verse 32, when some of the Levites rebelled, and that was considered what? A betrayal, right? And what is the Antichrist going to do? At three and a half years, he's going to betray the nation of Israel. And so the same judgment that happened to Korah and those that rebelled, betrayed 
Moses by saying, you take too much upon yourself, Moses. Aren't we all the children of God? In the same way, the earth will swallow up whatever attack that the enemy brings against these fleeing Israelis. And the fact that they escape, it makes Satan livid. Look at verse 17. And the dragon was wroth. It means he was furious. He became enraged with the woman. And he went, the word there means to depart or leave. He departed from pursuing the woman to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. He stops chasing them and he turns his rage upon another group. The remnant means that which remains. It's not against the woman, but it's against the, that which remains of her seed, her offspring. Well, who's her offspring? Verse 5, it's Jesus. That's right, verse 5. It says that she gave birth to a male offspring who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. These are the remnants, that which remains of those who follow Jesus. And that's what it says here, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who will he turn his ire upon now, his rage upon? It'll be upon remaining tribulation believers. It'll especially be turned on the 144,000 who up to this point had been sealed, supernaturally protected by God. We're going to see them in Mount Zion, you know, in heaven in chapter 14. They will finally give their lives. So while Israel is still largely in unbelief, the woman... The Lord will protect her from eradication, but the tribulation believers will become the new target. And the Bible makes it clear they will be defeated by the enemy. Revelation 13, 7, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, explains what will happen to them. It's in Revelation 20, verse 4, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. They will be beheaded because they refused to bow the knee to the Antichrist and to the devil. Guys, what did Jesus say about the church? The gates of hell will what? not prevail against my church. This cannot be us. These are a different group of people. These are tribulation believers. The gates of hell cannot prevail against us. We are called to occupy till he comes, right? Look at what these are called to do. Revelation 14, verses 12 and 13. Here is the steadfastness of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The same people mentioned in verse 17. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto you, Write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. What? That's not our calling. We're not called to be blessed by dying, by being martyred now. Yea, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. We are called to occupy till he comes. This is not us. It cannot be us. This will be the final persecution and those who die in it will finally be able to rest from these horrible, difficult times. So, anyway, that brings us to the end of our study this morning. We're out of time, so we will 
pick it up in chapter 13 next Sunday. So read all of 13. I doubt we'll get that far, but read all of it just to get the context. We'll be introduced to at least one of the two other players on the final world stage, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Uh, we'll begin with the Antichrist next week and see how far we get. So anyway. I cannot stress enough, if you are here today and you have never repented of your sins and placed your trust in Jesus Christ, I cannot stress enough that you do not want to be around during this time. If you are thinking right now, well, I'll do what I want now, but after the rapture happens, I'll, I'll follow Jesus then. Can I just, can I please plead with you, plead with you to see reason that is not a good plan. That is not a good plan. Turn to the Lord now while there's still time. Jesus says, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So come to the Lord. Repent of your sins. Trust Christ as your Savior. Now, one final thought. To those of us who are in the fight now, we're still trying to occupy till he comes. Well, let's be those who overcome. Let's be those who rest in the finished work of Christ. Let's be those who cling to the testimony of what Jesus has already done in our lives. And let's be those who lose our lives that we might find true life. Amen? Let's be those who overcome. Let's all stand. Lord, we thank you so much for your, your love, your amazing love. Lord, we see horrible things. We cry out, how long? We cry out, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's what we long for. But Lord, we're so grateful for your mercy and grace that you wait because, Lord, that's why we're part of your kingdom. You waited for us, and so, Lord, we pray that you give us boldness to share our faith that others might come in before it's too late. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to cling to the promises of your word of what you've accomplished for us on the cross. Lord, that you'd help us to remember the things that we can be thankful for, all that you've brought us through. And Lord, that that would be the message, our testimony would be the message that we speak when the enemy says you're not gonna make it. And Lord, we choose even now this morning to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you, to lose our lives that we might find it. For your sake, Lord because we love you. And Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you for your great love, Jesus. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.